Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. Welcome to this latest edition of the Aspen UK podcast, Travel After COVID-19, Assessing the Challenges and How to Get Back on Track. It was recorded live at an EU delegation to the UK event in October as part of our partnership with them. And as you can hear from these great industry experts, there's a strong belief that the travel industry will recover from its post-COVID blues quickly, thanks to steps airlines and airports are taking to minimise the chaos. I hope you enjoy learning more. Good evening, everyone. Um, I am Nora Ruisi, and um, as a member of the EU delegation to the UK here dealing with uh, transport, I am very, very pleased um, on behalf of our ambassador, Joao Valle de Almeida, to welcome you all to Europe House. Through this panel event that we have co-organized with Aspen, we are looking forward to an open and constructive dialogue and engagement on the important topic of travel after COVID. Um, this is an event that we actually wanted to organize a while ago and we couldn't because of COVID. So we are very happy today to be able to host this event. Of course, transport is also very important between um, the EU and the UK in our relationship. We have seen that uh, restarting travel and transport services after many months of different various restrictions across countries has been challenging on both sides of the channel. Today is an opportunity to learn more from the specialists of the transport sector about why we face disruptions at holiday peaks, what are the difficulties um, that the industry is facing, and what are the best ways forward to rebuild resilience in transport. And we are also very interested to hear about the challenges also from the American perspective. And now I just wanted to, to hand over to uh, Ben Clatworthy, our moderator today. Ben, Cla ben is a tr the transport and travel correspondent for The Times. Thank you, Ben. The floor is yours. Thank you. Um, so as just mentioned, I'm joined by a fantastic uh, panel this evening for our discussion, starting uh, at the far end there with Simon uh, McManara. He's the UK and Ireland country manager for the International Air Transport Association, IATA, to many of us in the room. Previous to that, he was director of communications at Flybe and also has worked uh, as the director general of the European Regional Airlines Association. Um, in the middle here is Ria uh, Chatterjee. She's the Assistant Secretary, sorry, Assistant Section Secretary to the Civil Aviation and Tourism Services sections of the International Transport Workers Federation, which boils down to supporting 250 civil aviation uh, unions across the globe, working with their, basically empowering their people and working on their uh, rights. Next to her, uh, on the right is Pier Paolo uh, Settembri. Now he's from the EU here joining us today. He's currently the head of, un of unit for coordination and planning in the European Commission's Directorate General for Mobility and Transport. Um, previously, he's worked uh, as the General Secretary of the Council, working on the development of international uh, trade. Also joining us uh, 
But here to, to, to my right is Bob Schumacher, who is the director of sales for United Airlines and pre in the UK, but also Ireland, Israel, Jordan, uh, South Africa and, and other places as well. Um, and previously he was uh, a senior director for the UK at Continental Airlines. And finally, last but not least, uh, Christopher Snelling, who is here from the Airports Operators Association. He joined them in May 2020, a baptism of fire, uh, then previously head of UK policy at the Freight Transport Association, where he was for 15 years. And I know when we speak to Pierre Pally, you'll touch a little bit on freight as well as consumer uh, transport. Now, before uh, we start, so in a minute, Pier Paolo is going to give us a rundown from a European Union perspective on where we are, what's happened in the last two, three years, and also what the future holds uh, for transport. Before we do that, while I was thinking up how we were going to discuss today and what we were going to talk about, I and we are going to look to the future as well as back at what has happened in the last two years, but I thought as I was preparing, I went through some of the front page stories that I wrote, I covered the pandemic from start to finish, basically, and its impact on aviation and tourism. And it, this sort of therapy-esque, uh, looking back at some of the headlines. And I thought, these are front page stories, so it's not, it, it certainly it doesn't take us through absolutely everything, but I thought it was interesting just to look back at what a roller coaster we have been on as a, as a sector within transport. My first piece I wrote, I was in a pub in January 2020 when I got a call and said the Foreign Office have said no one should be going to China. And the next day they said that everyone needed to leave. And at that point, I genuinely I knew about this virus. I didn't know how to spell coronavirus. I said to one of my friends that I was in the pub with, how do you even spell this as we started uh, writing out? But these these headlines, I think, give just an element of what a roller coaster we've been on. So January, the, this is 2020, January the 29th, thousands of Britons warned against travel to China. April the 26th, budget airline back in the sky this week. That was Wizz Air. June the 27th, holiday season back on. July the 27th, holidays in turmoil as quarantine imposed. July the 28th, all travel is now a risk, holiday makers are told. August the 7th, Britons on their way to France risk quarantine. Uh, September, no, August the 14th, travellers to France sent into quarantine. September the 1st, tourists in turmoil over quarantine. December the 1st, Europe shuts its door to Britain. December the 23rd, Covid tests at lorry parks as France reopens its borders. 2021, January 16, Britain shuts its borders. February the 19th, hope for holidays overseas. February the 24th, Greece considers opening its borders. March the 2nd, digital pass to unlock Europe for European to UK tourists. Sorry, May the 14th, doubt over holidays to Portugal. June the 4th, Britain's rush to cancel holidays in travel chaos. July the 17th, French holidays in chaos. August the 5th, boost for summer getaways. September the 17th, holiday hotspots off COVID red lists in time for half term. And finally, 2022 January boost for holidays as travel tests are scrapped. Now, I think that just sums up. And honestly, when I was looking back at them, so many of them now actually mean nothing. You can't remember what the exact thing that some politician had said, the exact announcement, which department had made these announcements. But I think it sums it up. And they're dealing with all of that fallout was Pier Paolo, who's going to take us through a bit of 
well, your impression of what's gone on since those fateful days in January 2020. Thank you very much, uh, Ben. I, I can feel your headache uh, going through these uh, headlines. Imagine that I had the same plus uh, 27 times, you know, for each of the member states. So it was a bit of a difficult ride also for us. But before that, let me uh, thank the delegation of the EU in the UK and the Aspen UK for organizing this event. It's great to be back in person in London. It was such a momentous day. Well, that you couldn't know, but it was really uh, a treat for those who come from uh, um, uh, elsewhere. Um, basically, I would like to, to, to present briefly the reasoning we had uh, in, the, in the Commission about uh, the COVID months and how we try to make use of that experience to avoid this uh, uh, happening again, let's say, with the same uh, chaos. Uh, we didn't do it uh, uh, spontaneously. In a way, we were asked by the Member States uh, towards the end of 2020, when perhaps one of your headlines suggested that we were almost off the hook to say, OK, this is done. Uh, let's see what we can learn so that next time we'll be better prepared. Uh, initially, the focus from our perspective was on um, on freight, but it was clear that uh, immediately afterwards uh, we needed to do a much tougher exercise also looking at what would happen for uh, for passengers. So we developed this uh, uh, document uh, thinking that uh, COVID was the biggest crisis we had faced. And uh, by the time we, we had a document, uh, in fact, uh, the war uh, uh, of Russia against Ukraine uh, had exploded. And so we had to write a different document, unfortunately, because we wanted to take into account also uh, that, uh, uh, that crisis. Um, and that gave us, in a way, a, a two crisis basis to to try and understand how we will go about uh, a, a crisis that will impact the transport sector so heavily uh, in the future. Um, so it is a mix in the end uh, of, uh, of freight and, and passengers. It's a sequence of uh, uh, general principles that uh, for those who are familiar with union law, uh, are uh, quite standard, such as proportionality, coordination, and non-discrimination. But then we try also to be a little bit more uh, concrete. And you know, before a crisis, how do you uh, actually react in ways that will uh, will uh, uh, somewhat uh, uh, diminish, if not uh, eliminate, the, the the drawbacks that we've seen this time. Um, for passengers, if we go back, uh, uh, what happened with COVID, the first preoccupation is always the repatriation. Uh, it seems now a little bit uh, uh, distant in the past, uh, but uh, 650,000 people were repatriated uh, at the beginning of COVID, uh, 100,000 of them with the EU uh, cooperation instrument to uh, to do that. Um, in the case of the uh, Ukrainian uh, crisis, there was also a lot of uh, emphasis on helping people fleeing Ukraine to organize and transport out of Ukraine. So it was a different, uh, uh, let's say, effort, but still something that required coordination and also publicity about the available free travel that you had uh, at that time from, from transport operators, and many of them are actually uh, represented here. Uh, another aspect that was very uh, sore uh, was the protection of passenger rights. Uh, and there, uh, a very clear political decision was taken at the European level not to negotiate on the rights, uh, not even on the, the timelines for the respect uh, of, this, uh, of these rights. Uh, there was guidance provided on uh, alternative uh, ways than reimbursement by cash with the voucher, you remember uh, the, whole, uh, the whole debate, but the protection of 
passengers was, uh, let's say, a, a something that was reaffirmed and also for the future that should not be uh, negotiable. Um, another important aspect is to ensure uh, minimum connectivity. There was a lot of emphasis uh, about uh, a somewhat virtual differentiation between essential and non-essential travel, with the essential travel being allowed and the non-essential travel and not being allowed. But in the end, if you don't have non-essential travel, you end up not having essential travel in the first place because the essential travel sometimes does not justify uh, the maintenance of, uh, of, of, of travel. So here uh, as well, we provided guidance and I think it's something that should stay in the future on how member states can support uh, public service uh, for maintaining a connectivity because, for example, uh, medical staff needs to travel and, and, and other uh, people with an essential function need to continue to, uh, to travel. And then, of course, uh, uh, sharing uh, transport information was, uh, was key. What you said about uh, uh, the difficulty to have information remained throughout the pandemic. We had a, a European website, uh, Reopen uh, EU. Some of them might be familiar with it, but its relevance dependent on the accuracy of the information we uh, we received. And so that was not always the case. And sometimes it also led to uh, advice, to, to, to bad advice, because uh, the information there were not uh, updated. We have nonetheless uh, a successful uh, example in, in freight with um, the principle of uh, the green lanes, this idea that you only wait 15 minutes at the border to let uh, uh, trucks uh, cross uh, two member states. And thanks to the monitoring of, uh, of the borders, we could have this limit uh, maintained uh, throughout the whole the whole pandemic. So this was the first chapter about, in a way, uh, passengers. Then there is another one about things that were done for transport carriers and for uh, member states. Uh, the first one was to provide uh, regulatory and uh, economic uh, relief. So you remember at some point in your uh, timeline, uh, the ghost flights, so relief about the the slots obligation that slots could be kept even without flying uh, ghost uh, flights. Similar measures were introduced for all transport modes, some, some flexibility, for example, on, uh, on rail uh, track access, access charges, uh, on ground landing contracts that could be extended more easily, on the maritime ports. Uh, these this applied to all transport modes. We delayed the implementation of the fourth railway package, which was also a burden on member states. Certain rules on uh, aviation safety, aviation security were slightly postponed, not to say put too much burden on on the um, on the national uh, authorities. And then we developed, and this was also a first time, uh, health protocols. Uh, certainly people here are familiar with the ECDC EASA uh, health protocol, which for the first time and sometimes uh, in contradiction with some national rules, uh, provided guidance on how to uh, organize the, the transport in a situation of, uh, of pandemic. Very controversial was the idea that you could sit next to another person that, you know, without respecting the, 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 the physical distance and that's the way was required, was very uh, controversial, of course, but was uh, uh, somehow um, uh, possible thanks to masks and to, to ventilation uh, systems. And that provided member states guidance, that which was uh, uh, followed by and large, uh, despite that these uh, protocols did not have any, any, any legal uh, mandatory uh, uh, value. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, already uh, early in the pandemic, the next generation EU and uh, the 
uh, RRF, the Recovery and Resilience Facility, provided uh, member states with resources to accelerate investments, which to a large extent also benefited uh, mobility and sustainable uh, uh, mobility. And then there is the last uh, uh, block, which is probably the more most important for the discussion today, is about preparedness uh, for the future. So if we are confronted with the same, uh, what are the things that we developed this time that we can just take off the shelf and reuse? And here I think we have a mix of successful and less successful uh, tools that uh, uh, we can use or we can avoid in other cases. So one that I think is uh, is a clear success is the EU digital COVID certificate. Uh, it's a tool that today is used by 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 75 uh, countries. I'm uh, uh, pleased that it is more popular uh, now. There are more members, let's say, of this community that are non EU EU members. So it uh, imposes itself as the global uh, standard in a way. And every week there is a decision to extend it to two, three, four other countries, even in non-pandemic times, because. I think the community out there realized that uh, it is important to have this tool should situation require it in the, uh, in the future. It has been extended until June 2023 and now there is a discussion whether it should be extended even, uh, even further with the idea of being uh, prepared. And I think if you look at uh, the latest guidance on the measures to coordinate free movement within the EU and travel into the EU from outside, it builds for the future on a strong EU DCC COVID certificate plus non-pharmaceutical interventions such as masks. And there is no talks about other things that could interfere such as restrictions, uh, which we have uh, of course come to know. Um, then uh, there is a bit of a more uh, less visible uh, work, which is nonetheless very concrete uh, and which is already underway, is about uh, equipping our legislation with so some sort of emergency clauses, because something we realized the hard way is that we had a, a legislation at the European level that was fit for crisis, like aviation safety was a great example, uh, recent generation legislation that uh, gave the Commission implementing powers to adopt measures uh, in the space of hours. And then you had a bit of a, a older fashioned legislation for which you could only change a comma with the co-decision of the Parliament and the Council, which just uh, for with, with the all goodwill, you will lose one month just because of the design of the of the legislation. So in this case, we are now introducing provisions that will make any legislation uh, fit for purpose, uh, for crisis purposes, let's say. And one of them, for example, is uh, uh, passenger rights. There is a reflection now at the European level whether passenger rights should be adapted uh, to a future uh, crisis. As I said at the beginning, passenger rights were upheld in this crisis, and this is, I think, uh, the same in a future crisis, but there are ways maybe to comply with this uh, uh, legislation can be can be adapted to, to uh, a crisis. For example, not to expect a payment, uh, a refund within seven days when you have a, a million of passengers that, that, that reclaim it. That could be something that could feature in such a legislation. Or we had to enact legislation at the European level just to extend the validity of licenses and certificates, uh, which is something that in other circumstances should be done perhaps uh, within, within a few hours and is not particularly uh, controversial. Uh, another uh, strain, uh, strand of work is about uh, uh, testing this contingency because we could have the best plan on paper, but we will only know 
when the crisis uh, uh, strikes, whether we were right, were right or wrong. Uh, and so we intensified something that, especially in the aviation sector, is quite common, is to have exercises or testing uh, exercises to see whether provisions are, are, are good. Um, and this year there is an exercise with, uh, with NATO that will have a scenario about uh, transport. Last year, the, the aviation a community did a similar test with Eurocontrol, replicating the volcano ash crisis of 2010. Uh, and it turns out that just with better coordination, uh, an accident that at the time involved uh, uh, 8 million passengers would, if repeated now, involve only 3.6 million uh, passengers. Let's say the number of flights that would need to be cancelled would be a half, uh, 100,000 in the real crisis and 50,000 now, which is still enormous, but just by, by better coordination, we could avoid uh, uh, something like that. And then there is the issue of uh, uh, better coordination of member states' uh, measure. This is uh, an Achilles heel of what happened with COVID. And there is something for which, unfortunately, there is no magic fix because you cannot coordinate health policies of the member states. Uh, the success of uh, the, the EU COVID certificate rests on the fact that it was introduced uh, as a single market measure. It is uh, a technical tool that, as such, doesn't prescribe uh, how member states should use it. Uh, and this is why it could be adopted, could be adopted quickly and could be ambitious. In other areas, when we have all these uh, council recommendations about free movement within the EU and, uh, and uh, travel into the EU, we had to rest on voluntary decisions of the member states. And we had a, a, a court of auditors uh, special report that in a way uh, underlined uh, usefully for us uh, that uh, this cannot, cannot go on. Uh, uh, forever. There is one last piece uh, which I hope we will not see too much uh, in the future because it was a big headache for, for passengers, uh, which are the passenger locator forms. Uh, this is an example of how uh, uncoordinated action can uh, can make life miserable to, to, to many people. Um, there were at their peak some 21 different passenger locator forms out of 27 within the EU. There weren't two that were alike. So all of them were different. Some were paper, some were digital, some were required uh, on, on flights, some were required on all transport modes. Some were even required 24 hours before traveling. Uh, so some passengers were actually denied boarding if they had, because they hadn't submitted the passenger uh, look at the form. So that was probably uh, the, the worst uh, example of coordination at EU level. Uh, even here, we developed a European digital passenger look at the form just in case with the hope, honestly, that we will never see them <laughs> again. Uh, but at least uh, if we were to see them again, at least it will be a more of a uh, coordinated and harmonized uh, product we should all uh, be more uh, familiar with. I think I'll stop here because I, I went slightly over time. Sorry about that. So I will take less time later to reply uh, to question. And thanks a lot. Thank you. I suppose without going back and giving everyone PTSD, and while we are looking back, we're also going to look forward. Um, Pierre Palais there has gone through the sort of challenges and the positivities. And I think given the wide range of sectors we have here, it would be useful just to hear as a starter from each of your perspectives what the greatest challenge was unique to your sector, not as a, a broad stroke, but also what you thought out of it was very successful or what was something that's been learned for the future. And Rio, why don't we start with you from a people's perspective, because we've heard a lot of sort of a wider way of looking at things. 
So just quickly, we represent yeah. aviation workers across the industry. So people, but people across the industry. Um, I think going into the pandemic, probably job losses. And I mean, you saw a third of jobs disappear over the course of the pandemic, um, according to, I think, IATA numbers, actually. Um, and then those who were left in the industry were sort of battling through violence and battling through fatigue and you know every single one of those passenger locator forms and changing uh, regulations and changing requirements workers that we represent won the front line of those um, challenges and that's you know before the pandemic you kind of heard about drunk passengers who would cause a ruckus on a flight and now you had like cabin crew getting beaten up on the flight because people didn't want to wear masks or uh, ground staff at airports getting absolutely yelled at and abused because they didn't want, uh, they were the ones who had to deny boarding over incorrect tests or passenger locator forms. And then you had just a net loss of workers in the industry still trying to drive that industry through and get it through the pandemic and moving out of the pandemic. And these are workers, you know, who for a number of different reasons have seen their terms and conditions reduce, their pay get lower, their working hours get longer, their jobs get more complex. And in an industry that's, you know, in, aviation's kind of changed massively over the last few decades. Um, it's gone from being largely public sector to having a number of different players in it. And workers feel all of that because, you know, when ground handling moves from being inside an airline to outside an airline and then multiple ground handling and then new catering. All of those are workers whose jobs rely on each other because there's a complex chain that gets a plane in and out of the sky safely. And there's not that much coordination between those different parts of the industry. And all of that, I think, going through the pandemic, experiencing all of that, you had workers kind of turn around, especially in markets in Europe and North America and say, that's not worth it. Our jobs aren't, this isn't worth it anymore. And I can work down the supermarket and I'm not in charge of getting a plane safely into the air. And I earn about the same amount. And I think that's something that both in terms of the industry and in terms of workers that's changing now. You're seeing massive pay rises come through. You're seeing a recognition from across the industry that there needs to be longer term, medium term investment in upskilling and reskilling. And that sort of, I think that recognition that workers are critical to this industry and need to be thought of in the long term and engaged with in the long term is probably the greatest lesson for us coming out of the pandemic because this summer in Europe was definitely a, a, a testimony to what happens when that social pillar of sustainability collapses. And I think the industry across the board has sort of seen the necessity to ensure that that resilience goes into the future. And aviation has a number of challenges into the future, right? Sustainability, environmental sustainability, economic sustainability, all going to be on the table over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And getting that through is going to be important. On those attracting people back, I suppose, Christopher, from an airport's perspective, and Ria just touched on it there, that this summer was a pinch point within airports and there was a lot of negative publicity for both airlines and airports restarting. What's your view on sort of the A, looking back in terms of the way that workers were treated, but also getting people back into the workforce? Yeah, I mean, there was a, it was a, f a fairly disastrous phase through last year. And I think part of that was obviously you had the, the disconnect in Britain where the uh, job retention scheme was ended in line with domestic unlocking. 
but international unlocking only came much later. So you had this massive interregnum, uh, airports, airlines sustaining massive losses. And I mean, we as airports lost like 10 billion pounds worth of revenue during COVID. So you did have a lot of job losses, which reduced the capacity. You had a lot of people who chose to leave to get back to jobs they could actually do. And then we faced a pipeline of trying to staff back up. And there was a desperate desire to get people flying again, get traveling again. And then it became clear that actually the resource wasn't coming through uh, as quickly as might have been hoped. Uh, some of it through to the uh, security processing times, but some of it also just the increase in churn in the industry and the takeoff in some of the other industries as they came back, you got a lot more pull into some of the domestic sphere as well. So we found it a lot harder to bring people back quickly enough, particularly people with the value of people with experience. Um, and I think that's something that our members have relearned over those few months is that it's not just the bodies you've got, it's the people being experienced and knowing what they're doing, how to deal with problems when they occur. But obviously all of this over a backdrop still of COVID. So what we have, and we still have this today, is it is a more fragile system than before, because it's also, it's none of this was a UK phenomenon, it was across Europe. And of course, our travel movements, uh, the airline movements are all interconnected. So if you do have an air traffic control problem somewhere else in Europe, you get the ripple effects, causes delays. If you then have less resilience than before to cope with strange patterns like that, then things can quickly start to go wrong. Do you worry about people, though, as Ria touched on, that have left the industry and now saying, actually, to be honest, you said it yourself, and I know people who were cabin crew and so on that say, actually, it's easier to, well, the lady who works in my local pub was uh, worked for EasyJet cabin crew, had done it for quite a long time, then had a child, lost her job at the start of the pandemic. And then when hospitality reopened, got a job in a pub and says, actually, this is far nicer. The hours are actually more attractive and the pay is pretty much on a par with what I was getting. And airport jobs similarly are not, you know, many of them that are very crucial and not extremely well-paid jobs. Yeah, a lot of the jobs are have antisocial hours. They're very uh, physical jobs that you have to be present for. So when you're up against some industries have moved to more homeworking, others can be uh, more flexible about the hours. They have those opportunities to change those things. So I do think we're seeing that we're in a probably a permanently changed environment, which makes recruitment and retention much more difficult for that. I was talking to a member this morning who pre-pandemic, their churn rate of staff was 1%. It's now 10%. So they're having to just constantly recruit just to try and keep up, but what they're constantly losing experienced people. And eventually, you know, it is going to have to feed through, you know, into wages. I mean, the long term, it has to feed through uh, into that side of things if you're really going to uh, keep the people in. But then that has implications for the costs in the industry, uh, the operating model. You know, whenever our members go to the airlines, they don't come running to pay lots more money. Um, so it's going to be a difficult process as that works its way through the system. In terms of, uh, we'll cut Bob for the US perspective, I know in this country you hear a lot politicians talking about record levels of uh, low unemployment, that gainful employment, sorry, that we're, unemployment is at such a low, while not mentioning the B word Brexit that has come along in the, in, during the pandemic. But there are issues in Europe as well. I appreciate that. But what about in America? Because I haven't heard so much about how the, the restart has gone in terms of staffing and getting back going across the pond. Yeah, an interesting, an interesting uh, 
two, two sides, Piapello with the 21 different PLFs for, uh, for Europe and, and your headlines. And of course, there is a, a theme that runs through that. And for us in, in the US, it was interesting to see the difference between the US domestic market um, and international markets, of which, of course, still some are, particularly China, are still closed. We had the beauty, with the exception of Hawaii, really, of having within the domestic market a fairly quick return to between 70 and 80% of, uh, of 2019 levels, that benchmark. One day we'll move on from 2019 comparisons, but for the moment it has to be that. And, uh, and we watched people ebb and flow, we watched the TSA numbers particularly to see how many people were going through security checkpoints. And that allowed us to sort of, to stabilize. And uh, you've of course got a feather into that, the, uh, the CARES Act, uh, the payroll support program that came from, uh, uh, from the government, which also allowed us to keep experienced staff and particularly uh, particularly those highly trained on the payroll and whilst there were of course dangled during these times of utter uncertainty uh, there were exit packages dangled in front of staff across the across the piece um, we retained as many as we thought we could afford and and would want to have in the in the resurgence at united we kept the fleet too uh, others put down some of their fleets, just listening to people like Bill Gates saying that business travel would be gone, 50% of it would be gone uh, post-COVID, which thankfully has not been, uh, not been the case. But I, I think it also lends into the criticism locally here of the Bank of England and why didn't they increase interest rates? And well, you, think, you just forget so quickly how, how as, as, as Chris mentioned, you know, the furlough program was still running almost a year ago. I mean, September, at the end of September is when it closed. So there's lots of, uh, lots of Monday morning quarterbacks, I think, Americans call it analyzing what happened but we were in a uh, in a blessed situation really a cursed situation as an industry but in the US we were watching 80% of our flying still happening and load factors increasing as confidence grew and it's the big c word ultimately that gets trashed when you've got so many different regulations forms uncertainties which we all experienced during that course of is it worth going no I might get a form wrong and I get get rejected I'm not going to go and so we saw these two different worlds playing and uh, were very grateful for the US domestic market to keep us going and for cargo as you mentioned we ran many many empty airplanes stuffed with cargo. cargo and those restrictions that as you say I mean this time last year we didn't know about the arrival of Omicron we didn't know that the you were trying to staff up airports airlines and suddenly travel was back off again Simon from your perspective I know your boss, Willie Walsh, formerly of British Airways, has been extremely vocal about uh, the restrictions and so on. Presumably that for you, the stop-start nature of things is the biggest problem. Yeah, I mean, I think from our perspective, governments were caught on the hop. There was no handbook for this. And the people who paid the price for that were the airline businesses that um, had to live through these changes that were happening day to uh, day. So I think, I think for us, the sort of success out of COVID was so few airlines went bankrupt, frankly. Um, and certainly here in the UK, it had nothing to do with the government because there was no sector-specific support here. Let's be really clear about that. Um, there was the furlough scheme, but beyond that, there was nothing. So UK airlines faced a particularly difficult period compared to others. Bob mentioned the CARES program in the US. Um, and I think the frustration for us is that it was very clear right at the outset, and there was one body that had some advice, which was a WHO, which said, I'm not sure if you recall, right at the beginning, it said border restrictions, the economic and social damage that border restrictions will do will far outweigh the medical advantages of closing the border. And I think that's been proven correct. Um, and so we did unnecessary damage to our sector with job losses 
um, and all the subsequent problems that airlines have faced coming out of this pandemic, much more indebted, um, trying to keep their businesses going. So we did unnecessary damage to the sector because of the stop-start nature and because of the lack of preparedness of the sector, of the, in, of the government, sorry, the lack of multilateral cooperation. I mean, it just didn't exist. I mean, Pierre Paolo, you mentioned the EU. The, the Commission did a fabulous job of trying to corral that. And even in the EU, it failed to coordinate. Governments unilaterally did whatever they wanted to do. The UK here, many in this room lived and breathed it. We had announcements, ministerial announcements on a Friday night that were implemented on a Monday morning with no detail underneath them. They were just slogans that were thrown out there um, with no evidence. And it was industry that unfortunately had to deal with that. So a very difficult couple of years. And again, it's surprising that so many airlines are still in business, frankly. On those border restrictions, I think, Pierpaolo, one of the things here in the UK that bemused Britons was that we just had a massive argument effectively there's no two ways about it with the European Union that started over borders primarily in the pandemic what we saw was that the member states were able to just shut their borders kick people out ban people change the rules uh, implement different requirements and different for teenagers versus someone who was 13 and so on how was that allowed how was that actually something that european member states could do because i thought the whole point of the eu was not to be able to sort of shut your borders yeah. in that way well the reason they could do it is because there is um, a health uh, competence still a national uh, level the protection of health is not something that is uh, uh, harmonized at European uh, uh, level. Uh, yet the, the, the measures need to be proportionate, they need to be uh, lifted as soon as the situation uh, allow and so forth. So if the question is, was this done in compliance with the treaties, is a question that is longer, it takes longer to answer than the pandemic to disappear. Mm -hmm. So um, so we, we did uh, struggle, uh, especially because it was very difficult to get uh, a notification from member states uh, about the measure they were about to, to, to introduce. In fact, uh, if I were to identify the one single measure that was most important and we should be at the top of the list for the next pandemic is, or the next uh, crisis is to have a, a national uh, network of contact points. Uh, because uh, one might be surprised that uh, the first issue is whom to call to have the information, even among member states, because there are many instances, but all of them are specific enough to the problem you're trying to solve. And there are many issues that uh, on top of all the things that didn't work that we could avoid just because we knew about them and we could convince them not to take them. I mean, I think Chris mentioned the, the fragility uh, of the situation. Uh, I would say that for cargo, uh, for freight, is even more so than uh, than uh, than for passengers. Uh, we avoided uh, that one member state at some point introduced uh, just uh, an innocent uh, requirement of a rapid test for transport workers, for truck drivers. Um, is this, this is France we're talking about. No, it wasn't France. Oh. It was a small central <laughs> member state. <laughs> But uh, that alone would have paralyzed freight in the EU. But when these measures are introduced, there is no conscience of the consequences we have. Because if we introduce a requirement for even a rapid test that seems something like an innocent that you can do, then all of a sudden you also have an expectation that you'll be checked at the border. Uh, and if a member state checks uh, at the borders and you have uh, uh, four or five borders to the member state, then the whole freight uh, stops. But do you think there was an element 
within the block as well of a the ability to actually close the borders was a political decision that could be made and certainly in the case when i say france it did happen it it did happen that france shut its borders completely to to britain to freight as well and grant shapps former transport secretary now home secretary said to me that in the most complex brexit planning they had done there was not a single point that anyone in any meeting in this area that we're sitting in in london here or in brussels had gone what if France or uh, another European country, likely the Netherlands, shuts its border to freight? That happened in the pandemic during the transition period. Look, it was very difficult from our perspective to argue against restrictions at the border when uh, mobility was restrained even within the member states. So when you couldn't go from one city to another... Uh, within the same member state, uh, it was difficult to argue that the same should have uh, been allowed between uh, uh, between member states. And so we, we tried and argue for uh, exception categories, uh, essential uh, travel or requirements to enable travel. Uh, vaccination was one of them, testing was another. So try and ease um, um, that kind of uh, uh, mobility within a situation where member states had taken very tough decisions also within their own territories. And on terms of reopening, Bob, you all know from America, that was a that was a long time coming, getting Biden to reopen his border. That obviously took a lot of lobbying from your airline perspective. There was, um, needless to say, a lot of politics in there, uh, domestic politics as well as international. Um, and we got the taster a couple of months before we knew the announcement was coming and I think it was the 8th of November that uh, the, the, the gates opened and we just saw the recovery take off, uh, no pun intended, um, across the water. And, and that was the start certainly for us of, uh, of, of, of the international healing and, and you realise there was a competitive element playing through as well, country with country, although some have been real laggards in trying to uh, uh, up their game to be competitive with other countries in, in relaxing um, travel. But that really was a, a transformative moment for us and, uh, and one that uh, the whole sector had been waiting for. And on that restart, was the industry, and we'll come on to workers and coming back into the industry, but was the sector ready for the restart? Because there's been a lot leveled, and I suppose this is for Simon and Christopher to answer, there's been a lot of criticism that you weren't prepared. Well, it was almost impossible to be prepared because going back to what some of what Simon was saying, it was impossible for us to know when are we supposed to be restarting. Now, some of that makes sense because in a public health crisis, you have to prioritize the public health. But I think as the period went on, we knew fairly well what Simon was alluding to before that in the event of a pandemic starting, closing the borders gives you a couple of weeks to slow things down to maybe take some measures. Same thing maybe when there's a variant. But after that, it's basically doing nothing. and I think we knew that at that time, but the government wouldn't act on that quickly enough because, and this where I think it was just political, uh, in a similar fashion as we were just touching on with America, it became, well, we need to be seen to be tough on this. And so we can't just have free borders because people feel like that's a dangerous, bad thing, even if the reality is something different. So that meant we knew we were in a political situation, which meant we couldn't just look at a bunch of metrics about healthcare and say, ah, look at that, we're going to be reopening on, you know, the 15th of January. Um, it was very unclear. And then actually the final stages of it, uh, of removing, because it's not just a black and white, were you banned or not? It's the level of cost and inconvenience on travel that progressively puts people off. The final stages of that, to give credit to the government, went much quicker than we were expecting. 
But again, in actual Caught planning, you out in a different yeah, way. it catches you out in a different way because we were like, uh, you know, one month it's you've got to plan around having the PLF for a year and we'll keep trying to simplify it a bit. The next month it's gone. And yes, we want that, but it made planning restart very difficult. There was a lot of squabbling within the industry, people blaming one another. And we touched on it with that it's such a fragmented industry. It's easy for the industry to blame governments. Governments then kick back, which we saw in the UK, and saying, well, you weren't ready. At the bottom of all of this are the people that are there serving us, looking after us, taking us on business holidays and so on. Do you feel from the your members that you're speaking to that they're that they feel let down as the way that they've been treated during the pandemic? Oh yeah, massively. That's a one sentence answer quite easily. But of course they were. I mean, the number of uh, people who lost their jobs and just looking at that basic number gives you a mm-hmm. part of a story. But I think also in terms of sort of the way employment was attempted to be restructured. Um, you know, you've, you're now seeing almost a national wave coming out around fire and rehire in the UK and the East, which workers lost their jobs overnight. And then they came back as outsourced workers a little further away from the from Europe Employer, and North yeah. America. If you think of Australia and what happened with Qantas over there and 2000 baggage handlers getting sacked overnight and rehired through an agency. I mean, y- yes, workers did feel massively let down. But I think going forward, Uh, The question is about how this industry as a whole manages to coordinate in such a way that it can plan to bring workers back and it can put workers, you know, as part of a table that sort of thinks about this. Uh, The question around planning is an interesting one because you had so much conflicting information about how much the industry would return that no one was quite willing to believe what the actual number was and so if you told baggage handling companies we're going to need you to come back at 75 percent capacity they weren't willing to take the risk to hire those many workers because if that 75 percent didn't come back they were bearing the cost of it and then you think of that around the cleaners the caterers the airport workers cabin crew pilots air traffic services that is i think a crisis that we're going to see go out into the next 18 months and two years so you just had an inability to sort of plan adequately about what this industry would look like in its return and what would be needed where in the industry. And so really going forward, there's a need for greater coordination within the industry for governments to take a more sort of active role in this space as well, because I think one of the things that COVID definitely showed us is that aviation is first and foremost a public utility. Um, when we're talking about you know repatriations and stuff, the sort of hidden story of the economic system and how it was on the verge of collapse time after time. Aviation played a huge role in keeping it going. And you know, we also represent seafarers at the ITF and you had hundreds of thousands of seafarers stuck on ships who couldn't get home. That entire industry functions off of aviation. And so when you shut down borders and you stop people traveling, you're also shutting down ships because people can't get on and off ships. And no one thought about that. And what you actually had at that point was industry and workers coming together to ask governments to sort it out. So I think going forward, there's a much greater need for there to be proper communication and proper dialogue. And I think if you look at Spain coming out of the pandemic and coming into recovery, they've actually done relatively well. And that's a country that had like very, very strong strong sectoral level sort of bargaining and dialogue across the piece. And I think that how they fared in this recovery summer period is a 
testimony to that model. Are you surprised? I mean, there have been issues across Europe and so on at getting people back into uh, aviation. I, I was almost surprised at how smoothly in the workforce did work this operate this summer in that there weren't as many strikes as some people had feared there wasn't as much disruption in that sense that some people had feared there would be as workers who were employed that were walking out and so on we didn't actually have as much of that I think you had a moment where industry realized and sat down and worked with unions in a number of places and that avoided a lot of additional chaos that could have happened so if you looked at how sort of the news ran out, there was, you know, there was the possibility that pre-pandemic and a lot of workers took temporary pay cuts to support uh, getting businesses through. And you had sort of the possibility that those wouldn't come out. That almost went to dispute. There was a recognition that, you know, if these workers work walk out, we already have chaos and we're going to have even more chaos. And you sat down and you kind of got to a sustainable deal between workers and uh, business and that 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 sort of plays out everywhere and where it works well is where both recognize the importance of each other and I think in the UK this summer you've seen that happen a lot and you've sort of also seen in conditions rise dramatically I mean I think Gatwick workers took a home like a 19% pay rise and uh a number of workers at Heathrow were taking home double digit pay rises. And, you know, you look at those and you say, those are huge, but these are workers who've had sort of, you know, 0%, 1%, less than 1% pay rises for, for years and years beyond it. So I think in a moment of crisis, there's also recognition of importance. And that importance can sometimes build good dialogue and good engagement. And I think that's sort of what avoided the that, level those of problems. Yeah. Which I think brings us on nicely in talking of pay rises to the future and the pressures that we face. And just thinking of things uh, the other day, obviously, future pandemics and Pierre Pally, you talked about your preparedness for future events, but also war, terrorism, the tightening of the labour market, inflation, net zero in the environment, cybersecurity, fuel prices. All of that adds up in my mind, Simon. The end of cheap flying. Yeah, <laughs> it's certainly a challenging environment coming out. The other, the other one on top of that, Ben, is debt, the indebtedness of the industry. So uh, our numbers show that the industry has about $110 billion of debt to pay back that was given to them through the pandemic. So it wasn't all free handouts. Um, uh, yeah, an incredibly challenging time coming out uh, for the business. So, I mean, our forecast is that uh, we're still forecasting return to uh, pre-pandemic levels in 2024 globally. Um, but the next two years, we've, we've depressed our forecast a bit because of those headwinds that you just described, the geopolitical situation, uh, fuel. The most recent one is the strength of the dollar as well. The in airline industry in particular is extremely exposed to the US dollar because a lot of its costs are in the US dollar, whether it's leasing costs or fuel, but a lot of their revenues are not. Um, so that's another headwind that suddenly popped up. Uh, that perhaps people people didn't see coming. Is it the end of cheap flying? Well, I mean, you know, you can draw your own uh, conclusions on that. It's not something we say. What's clear, though, is that airlines will have much higher costs coming out of the pandemic than they did going into it. Um, uh, demand, we think, is is predictable in the longer term. In the short term, there's a good amount of pent-up demand that's still being unleashed. And when we see markets like China reopen, we'll see that. We saw that in Europe. Bob mentioned the US when people do get flying. So revenues will be good. Um, but it's certainly going to be a challenging time for airlines to manage those headwinds across the next few years. And Bob, in terms of that in the US, uh, the dollar, 
a buyer's market if you want to come here. I think Shai Waste, the chief executive of Virgin, recently said that it's basically cut-price Britain, half-price uh, Christmas shopping for people coming over. Are you expecting that to have a benefit in terms of tourism coming this way, or is it negotiable at this point? No, it's it's very obvious. It's very obvious at this moment. Um, the, the Americans have very thick, rich dollars in their pockets. They've watched the appreciation of the exchange rate. Some, I think the UK, the UK sterling against the dollar is about 17% change this year. Um, uh, may have may have changed with a with a new prime Last minister. Twenty <laughs> minutes. Um, so it's it's uh, and, and of course we have the ability to orchestrate some of that in that uh, we we want to go and fill optimally fill as Simon's mentioned. We're hauling huge amounts of debt with us uh, that need servicing at ever higher interest rates, unfortunately too, as we see that across the global economy. And so uh, our point of sale focus is as a US, for us, a US brand, and uh, for Retta as well as, uh, as American, we'll all be trying to get the optimum fare, which means, uh, to answer your question to Simon earlier, that yes, there's, a, there's been an appreciation of, of, of fares, of, of yields, of, of total revenue per available seat as we measure it, and uh, we came out with our results last, uh, last Wednesday, which saw uh, total revenue per available seat up 23, 24% against 2019, which was seen as a high watermark anyway. So in that respect, it's been dramatically uh, good. Although, of course, it's, it's economics 101. Um, we're only flying around 89% of our, of our seat miles against 2019, and our competitors similarly in the mid-upper 80s, despite the fact that the US has recovered so much earlier than much of what's been going on here in Europe. So it's a, it's, it's a long haul out, and once we start to see that, new, that, that capacity which is not new, which is sort of sedentary, if you like, coming back into uh, into operation, then what does that do for the price? Um, that'll be the, the determinant. And of course, then that begins, depends on the big R recession, is how strongly does that hit? Uh, but for the moment, we're happy to have a lot, uh, a lot of our bills are in dollars and most of our revenues in dollars. Uh, it makes it much more difficult, as Simon suggests, for those that aren't dollar-centric companies such as our own. And in terms of one of those big words that in those future uh, headwinds that we've got in a way not shouldn't be said as a headwind but the environment it's no two ways of getting about that it sort of got forgotten during the pandemic nobody was flying were people on the news saying the sky was bluer than it was ever before Christopher you must feel this in terms of for your members the airports their concerns about what what the future looks like with the growing no-fly movement and yeah, so on. Uh, absolutely. I think for, for the whole aviation industry, and it was interesting, as you said, I joined AOA just as the pandemic started, and I think everything became about COVID. And really the one exception to that that kept coming through was carbon. Uh, and I think that continued as a theme and the work carried on on it, both within industry and with government. Um, and I think we're very conscious that we have a massive challenge in decarbonizing our industry and our activity, but also demonstrating to people that we're doing it. And that's a major challenge uh, for us. We're part of a, a coalition here called Sustainable Aviation, which is all of the, the major airlines, airports, manufacturers together, setting out a roadmap for how we can go about reaching net zero by 2050. We were one of the, the first sort of nations, industries to adopt that. It's now been adopted globally, uh, which is really positive news. And we have uh, a roadmap to that. But you're absolutely right. There are uh, we have to demonstrate delivery of that before people will have faith in us that we are doing that. And we certainly see that if we are not seen to be delivering on carbon, that idea of flying being bad per se will only grow and will you know eventually start to affect travel habits. 
And what about from a European perspective on that, the future, presumably there is again within the Commission and in Brussels more talk about the environment and sustainability again now that we're moving away from the health issues. Yes. Well, taking aside the, the war and the possible other waves of COVID, there were two fears, let's say, for, for, for the sector. One was a, a sort of a post-pandemic apathy where people got used to not travel anymore and somehow they felt this should be continued, which I think uh, has not materialized. I mean, people, uh, on the contrary, uh, accumulated frustration for not being able to travel. And this summer, uh, uh, this this uh, frustration <laughs> got out and, and, and people traveled. In fact, I, I, I am surprised by how quickly the recovery was in the summer because, you know, 87% compared to 2019 is something uh, that should uh, uh, say be celebrated and pay tribute also to an industry that managed to, to, to rebound so quickly. Um, but there is an issue with the other uh, fear, which is uh, the perception about uh, <coughs> traveling and the impact on the, uh, on the environment. Now, on the policy side at the European level in 2021, uh, we proposed a, a massive uh, legislative package, which is called the Fit for 55. So to be ready to reduce emission by 55% by 2030 and to be climate neutral by 2050. This concerns uh, the whole uh, transport uh, uh, sector, including uh, aviation, a lot of emphasis on, on the ETS for aviation, on sustainable aviation fuels, but also on leading efforts uh, uh, worldwide with, uh, with the Corsia at ICAO. And I think uh, we just had a very successful uh, general assembly in uh, in in Montreal um, earlier this month uh, with the uh, commitment to become uh, carbon neutral by 2050 by the whole uh, sector. Um, of course, the public is not thrilled to pay more to make uh, aviation or any other uh, part of the transport sector more uh, sustainable. When we prepared our strategy, we ran a Eurobarometer uh, survey about the attitude towards um, traveling and 50% uh, of the respondents categorically said, I'm not willing to pay more to make aviation uh, more sustainable uh, in the future. Now, what is more encouraging is that the, this percentage goes down to 39% for the category between 15 and 24 years uh, old. So two thirds, let's say, of the youth are ready to pay more uh, to make aviation more, more sustainable. So, sorry, the first statistic was what the first number was? People who are not willing to pay more in order to make aviation more uh, sustainable. So I'm not willing to pay my flight uh, more than it is uh, because it's more sustainable, for example, because it runs on uh, sustainable aviation fuels and therefore is more expensive or for any other measure uh, that is that, or for offsetting, for example, the, the travel. They're going to get a shock then, basically, these people, <laughs> aren't they? Because that, and yeah. Simon, you can touch on this. I mean, SAF is not really a global benchmark. Sustainable aviation uh, fuel is not really a global benchmark price for that yet. But everything that all of those headwinds that we talk about are going to push up prices. Yeah, and I think, well, uh, you know, uh, sustainability is a massive strategic challenge. Uh, but I think we're one of the few sectors, and this doesn't get enough airtime, I think, that has committed to a long-term goal. It's, a, it's as Christopher and, and uh, Bob were saying, it's now globally agreed, uh, ICAO, as of uh, the week before last. So we have a policy framework to get there. One of the challenges that we have as a sector is delivering that net zero goal globally is reliant on a whole range of different actors, if you want to call them that. What, the biggest chunk of that pie is sustainable fuel. Um, so ensuring an adequate supply of that is going to be really critical. So that requires investment. And it requires governments to support that in sustainable aviation fuel and delivery of that. 
uh, and other policy tools. And I think we have to make sure we stay on that track to meet net zero, because not all of that is within the control of airlines, by the way, it's not. You know, it's within the control of others to actually help facilitate it so that airlines can, can buy sustainable fuel and get sufficient quantities. Um, but I think we, we are, as I said at the beginning, we are one of the few sectors globally, in fact, I think we are the only sector globally that has a policy path to get there. Um, uh, I think the second challenge is people's perceptions as well. And that's a, 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 an issue that has plagued this industry for years, is that people perceive us as a, as a, as a dirty industry. How we change that is, is probably one of the biggest challenges. And I'm thinking, looking around the room, it's probably not us in this room, it's the next generation of people, uh, our children, who we have to convince. And I think about my own children as well. I have many an argument with my 19-year-old son about this, about, you know, is aviation clean or not? And I think that's what we have to focus on, is educating that generation that actually aviation is clean, and yet there's massive benefits that come from it as well. Um, and one of the perception problems is that aviation is just there for leisure travel, which is something we have to overcome. And that was a problem in the pandemic. People assumed people were traveling to go on holiday to Spain. It wasn't the case. There were surgeons traveling. There was very important goods flying around in the lower deck. So, so changing the perception of the value of aviation and what it contributes to our society, your example of shipping, for example, being shut down if aviation doesn't function, that's another one we have to to an extent, educate governments, I think, as well, because there's a natural assumption that we're not part of the solution for global growth, whereas, in fact, we are. I think also going back to that point of during the pandemic, I mean, we had advertising campaigns coming out of the Foreign Office going on holiday is illegal. There was a stigmatism. Pretty Patel stood up in the Commons and said that people had been in their droves taking their skis to St Pancras to go skiing. It was incorrect. I spoke to Eurostar. They said that one group of people who were going to a European training school had got the Eurostar with legitimate purpose to do it. Is there a fear, though, that there's this stigma that's come through? You talked about it in terms of the rear, in terms of getting people back into the industry, that travel, transport, aviation has been damaged in the long term by what we've seen in the last two years. Well, can, I, can I just um, add to Simon's great catalogue of, 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 of it? And I, I look at you as well as a, as a communicator to, to the masses that, that we have a huge, it's a communication story that we've gotten wrong so far. We've been the victim, we've been the victim of noise, we've been the victim of runways, of pollution, blue skies or light blue skies and all of, all of that. And that's just mounted on. And we have not had the counter talk of everything that, that Simon's touched on that we have to do to ensure that we do make net zero by 2050 and, and our company's goal to be 100% green by 2050. And unfortunately for us, very unfortunately for us, there's no silver bullet. There's not going to be anything that just transforms us from a hugely hydrocarbon consuming business to one that can do without them. I think the statistic for 2019 was some 85 billion gallons of aviation fuel were used by our industry. And to find a substitute for that overnight, where about 0.05% of that was sustainable aviation fuel in 2019. Sustainable aviation fuel has a role to play. I after I think saying 10% by 2030, we're all trying to aim for that. But that's 10% of that 80 odd billion gallons. But we're doing many, many other things too. And I think this is something which we don't talk about enough publicly. And this is us as a company, all of our competitors too. This is not a competitive issue. This is where we all have to link together to say, actually, we're trying to clean, clean this up. We're doing this through electrification at airports. Anything that can be run on electric should be run on electric. We are 
taking some 500 new aeroplanes, all of them 20% less consumers of, of fuel and 20% less uh, polluters of uh, uh, CO2. Also far, far quieter as far as a local resident is concerned. We're investing in electric flying, looking at the opportunities that come with that. We're investing in carbon sequestration, the mechanical taking out of, uh, of, of CO2 from the air and burying it and putting money into that because we see that as really ultimately we're going to take a huge amount of carbon out. And we're, going, we're looking, um, one of our competitors, Delta, are working with MIT on contrails. About 10% of CO2, uh, of, of, of global warming, sorry, is coming from contrails and reflection of uh, heat back to Earth. And how can we deal with that? So there's a, a checklist of, of items that we are actually doing and very few people know about it. And that's because we have to get our house in order. If we don't get our house in order, they're going to come after us. And I don't mean that in too paranoid a way, but it'll come from, it'll come from government top down. And so we have to go and continue to repeat all of these things that we're doing and the investments that we're making. But you're also going to have to do it from a workforce point of view as well. It's well known that the tobacco industry, for example, now struggles to get people to go and take up positions in companies that you know, 20 years ago were very successful businesses and people wanted to go and work for them. Aviation could go the same way as that and you would then face even bigger troubles. I feel really passionate about this. Like, I absolutely do not think aviation can shut down. That's I, And I would argue that with anyone. I mean, the global supply chains, unless we're going to find a way to only eat and drink what grows in the UK and um, never leave the island, you're going to need aviation to connect the world's supply chains, right? So that's the first thing. The second is this world has a huge number of migrants across this world. And I'm a migrant. My family lives 9,000 kilometers away. I have as much of a right to meet my family and my friends that I grew up with as people whose families live 50 miles away. And then the third is everyone has a right to leisure. That's not something that should ever be um, discounted. People have the right to go on holiday. People have the right to earn the rewards or reap the rewards of hard work. So I think in terms of will aviation go away, it's a, it's a huge privilege to say, well, I'll never fly again. Genuinely, if you can afford to take trains in this country and, you know, only only go on like wonderfully green holidays. That's if they're running, and, of course, yeah, as well. That's yeah. another, that's, I think that's another Aspen Institute conversation yeah. on another day. That's not this one. But, you know, this aviation is important. It's critically important to the fabric of the society globally, not just within countries. So it's not going away. That doesn't mean, though, that we don't have a massive challenge on our hands. It's huge and I completely agree with you it's something that we need to work together on and we need to work across the world together on there are huge challenges the investments in sustainable aviation fuels and re refleeting the industry to bring more up-to-date that's we're talking huge amounts of investment and where is it going to come from and you know only the world's advanced economies doing this and the world's developing developing economies not being able to afford to do it or not being not not prioritizing it over economic growth is a, is a challenge because climate change isn't just affecting one or two countries, it affects the world. So I think there's a huge need for us to be thinking together on this and to be 
coordinating together on this. We need to ensure that those who do make the investments in sustainability initiatives are not penalized for it. So if your, the European Union brings in measures that require European airlines to make certain changes that increase costs, that shouldn't mean there's unfair con- competition from another part of the world that can you know, avoid the same costs because they're not the same requirements. So there's a we need to think about this holistically and globally. And from a workforce perspective, workers are going to power these changes to sustainability. And so we need to be thinking about reskilling. We need to be thinking about redeployment. We need to be thinking about how we keep workers in this industry because we've already acknowledged how crucial um, experiences. So I think working together in exactly what you were saying and really thinking this through together is going to be critically, critically important for the future. And in terms of workers, Christopher, getting people back in, I mean, I think one of the calls that is getting louder and louder is to make giving visas to Europeans easier and not, I mean, uh, the boss of EasyJet saying that the, the not, they were turning down 80% of applicants for cabin crew jobs this year for EasyJet UK because they can't afford to give them visas they're not on the shortage list they can't afford to give visas based on the salaries that they pay this must be something you're looking at yeah absolutely i think the biggest operational challenge for us over the next six months is about staffing levels and the most immediate solution or response to that is to change some of the rules on migration and i think the way the government has looked at it is purely about skills shortages and for some of the roles we want to fill it's a willingness shortage it's an interest in doing that kind of work Um, and that appears to be a fairly sticky shortage for us if we just sort of isolate ourselves off as a country is that because we're back into that situation that brits don't want to do these jobs is that yeah and also the employment levels are massively high now i mean although we're struggling as an economy in many ways people are employed there's no uh, labor force out there who are suitable for these jobs who are uh, can just be tapped up for them and that's what we found as well about there are the increasing pay deals which is a necessary part of it but that also isn't a magic solution because that doesn't increase the pool of people who could be doing these things so the immediate solution is to change something on the migration front so you can bring people in which makes perfect sense while you've got a very full labor market and the medium term solution is about uh, skills, upskilling the workforce, but also from you know for us to take on is about investment in technology and processes, so you can become more efficient in the medium term because we are going to face this kind of changed environment for a very long time now. But that has to be done in a way that unions will. I mean, within the airport sector, a bit like within as we just touched on their train, the train industry, technology can be something that's seen as a as a sort of barrier yeah. and something it, it, that's a transitional process that has to be managed carefully but you know frankly the last problem we have at the moment is you know excess people who we don't need anymore um but you know we can see it through how uh, the border is managed by border force that can get more efficient check-in processes are getting more efficient security processes over the next few years can become more efficient but what it does mean is that you may still need the same number of people but they will need to have a higher skill level to do a range of different things utilizing technology and then those same people can produce a much higher output and that's what we're really after we will come to questions in a second from the audience digital borders it's something that the eu are looking at one of the elephants in the room from us and accepting that the uk is now uh, is now outside of the block it is classed as a third 
country, the European entry and exit system is due in in May next year. Can you tell us anything about that, Pier Paolo? What we need to expect? I mean, certainly, I know we've talked a lot about aviation, but the port of Dover and the Eurotunnel are absolutely terrified about what your your proposed system is that's going to cause chaos on our roads down to the port of... No, I, I cannot say much. I know it's coming. It will come next year, but um, but not, not much because this doesn't depend on, on transport. It, it also, in the, in the member states, it depends on the ministries of interior. So it's one of those areas where we are hands off, unfortunately. But it will have a knock-on for your department at some point, even if it doesn't. And then there's the ETIAS as well that we're having. I mean, this is a lot more... I mean, the list uh, is long. It's passenger name records, is uh, advanced passenger information. So the processes that we'll add are, are many. What we are trying to argue from our perspective is that all these processes should bring simplification. Should bring simplification, for example, also in case of, uh, of pandemic and other crises that will uh, emerge. One example, I think, that some uh, airlines and member states try to implement is uh, to reuse the data the passengers were giving to, to airlines uh, so that you wouldn't have to submit them uh, again. Some countries at the time... But then that falls foul of a different GDPR or some issue. Indeed, that, that was the, the, the limit uh, at some point. But some countries at the time, despite uh, the, 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 the short time available, to uh, integrate some of these processes like uh, the COVID certificate validation with the PLF or the boarding, uh, pro the, the checking process with the, the PLF. Uh, and for the future, uh, ideally, we should also be able to reuse some of the data that are given to, to the authorities and sometimes directly to the airlines that to be given data to the authorities to contact tracing or other purposes. Now, the difference, for example, with the U.S. is enormous. For the U.S., it was enough to issue when Omicron appeared a federal order to say from this moment onwards, airlines are due to give to health authorities this and this data about every passenger, every flight. In the EU, that wasn't possible at European level. You could only do it at national level. And those countries that did not introduce a PLF they were not lazy or not doing uh, contact tracing properly. They just had the possibility to uh, go to their airlines and extract this data. So whatever new process will come, it should bring facilitation for, for any other purpose that could affect mobility and not only additional layers. But do you think, I think, suppose the fear is that you say yourself, the passenger locator forms are one of the less successful uh, byproducts of a pandemic, that now we're having entry and exit system plus ETIAS that actually are increasing the amount of bureaucracy that, and again, I say against a backdrop of Brexit, I appreciate the reason that we are no longer inside the block and have this, but is that, are your colleagues working to make sure that that is as streamlined as possible and not... I mean, there are different grounds for which these boarding. measures are introduced. I mean, uh, protecting uh, our countries is also very important. I mean, uh, terrorism is something that should be uh, fought. So these are not just the layers of bureaucracy. They serve a very specific purpose. What we are trying to argue from our side is that... Uh, the valuable information that are given should be exploited as much as possible to avoid that they are given twice, that are given to uh, authorities that don't need them, so that uh, at the end of the day, when you have a, a, a crisis like uh, COVID, you can issue uh, an order that says uh, airlines should give this data to health authorities without establishing a system that would require every passenger to give this data twice. But as Bob says, communication has been a big problem. You can 
sure as hell bet that our government are not going to be very proactive in promoting your new entry and exit system and so on. This is, Brits are, impo- and all outside of the block are important tourist business travellers to the EU. You are going to have to communicate this extremely well to make people not be denied boarding to planes for not having That's the also right. why it's not enforced yet. No, but when it, when it comes <laughs> yes. along to make sure. Questions from the floor. Thank you very much, everyone, for answering my questions. From the floor, the gentleman there in the blue jacket. So I guess I have two questions. One is about industry and one is about government slash governments. And I, I ask these having been around this industry for many years and varied parts of it. Uh, on the airline side, uh, and I don't just direct this at Simon, but um, over the years, I've w- been in many meetings where the ability and willingness of the individual companies to agree on a way forward, particularly in terms of speaking directly to your customers, using the marketing and sales and frequent flyer clubs to talk specifically about difficult issues, and where the corporate people have wanted to do that, there's been a resistance to doing that historically. And that seems to me to have been um, a mistake. And I wonder now, as everyone recognizes the significance of this issue, that willingness to talk directly to your best customers who spend lots of money and alert them to all these things you're doing, which is was pointed out, most of them are only aware of a little bit of, to change that reputation, which I think you described as being a dirty industry, is, is correct. And is there really the willingness and the ability to do that? Because in the broader, certainly the meetings that I've been in with the airlines and the airports and the manufacturers and the ground handlers are in the room together, often the decisions about being together and working together are actually driven where everybody is in their own economic cycle, quarterly results, etc. And I wonder if this is so significant and strategic that finally there's leadership to overcome that. And asking in a way the same question to government. I mean, I was at Conservative Party conference a couple weeks ago and I saw the Secretary of State in an event basically say she didn't believe that the government was gonna have to put any money on the table to develop SAF. And that just seemed to me to be extraordinarily naive. And considering how much SAF is produced in the UK and how much the UK airlines need, unrealistic in terms of expediting, realizing the, the goals that are, are out there. Um, and I don't know if maybe the UK is worse about these things because of its history of privatization and deregulation, but do we think that now the kind of moonshots that were heard about all the, that this can get on the list of things where governments really have to get behind it and put money where their mouth is? Do we think that's likely now? Simon, do you want to take the first one on communication? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the one difference now, particularly, I think you're talking about sustainability, right, more yeah. than anything else. I think um, uh, it's been quite interesting. If you go back over the past 20 years, sustainability issues in the sector tended to ebb and flow depending on the economic cycle. So, so when everyone was doing well, suddenly we were worried about the climate. And then when we were hard up in the recession, it was all ditched, all the regulations. I, I, I sense now that has changed, actually because the one topic that never went away in the pandemic, apart from talking about traffic lights and extraordinary rules, was sustainability. So I think that has changed in the pandemic, and I think it is now. You look at all the actions that airlines are taking, Bob, and I look around the room at the airlines here, 
every airline with credibility now is taking actions on sustainability and communicating those. So, I mean, I think to simply answer a question, I think, yes, there is a change now compared to what it was. I tend to agree with you if you go back pre-pandemic many years, but I think it is a topic now that has gained significant um, strategic importance, not just in commercial companies, but in governments as well. They're not going to let it go. On the SAF question, I went back to DFT after that uh, discussion that you've talked about. And I think the officials there have slightly rode back. I certainly knowing Tim Oldslave from Airlines UK was very vocal following that uh, discussion at the uh, Conservative Party conference that probably, and I think, Bob, you would agree that without government funding, there's going to be, you know, they're thinking, what, four SAF plants in the UK by 2050, thirty, something like that. Without any government money, though, it's going to be very difficult to get this off the ground, isn't it? It's, it's very difficult. But I think to your, to your point, it's coming, and as Simon's has touched on, it's coming from the customer to us as well. It's not as though we can we can just go and bat it off as if, we, if, if I was being very honest and cynical or the other way around, post financial crisis, this was on every RFP from a big corporation. What's your what's your sustainable? What's your DEI? It was a tick box. It was a tick box exercise and moved on. This time it's for real because these big corporates, of which some of them are maybe represented in this room, have signed up themselves to reduce their carbon by X by X year. And so they have to deliver it. And that's going through travel management that used to just talk about the best fare in the market or whatever fitted their business, uh, their business movements. And it's now their carbon as well. They have a carbon allowance that they have to achieve. So uh, as Simon said, this is, this is not going to go away. And ultimately, we don't want it to go away. I mean, we have to, we realize that if society as a whole, there's going to soon be 8 billion of us on this planet. If we're going to survive um, and across, across beyond that mankind, we're going to have to put our own house in order. All we can do in aviation is put our own house in order and assume that everybody else in every other sector will do the same. And government has to be a steward of that. One question, glass of wine waiting for us. I know, gentlemen here, uh, your question. Uh, I, I wanted to go back to uh, basically what you were saying. The um, two main points: the 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 fact that airlines are uh, somehow still in business, and also the the challenges you know for them um, ahead. Um, and so, to to, to look at, at this from the from the airlines perspective, um, a year ago or so, I mean, I was working on the restructuring of Avianca, the the Colombian uh, airline who had filed for um, uh, Chapter Eleven in the U.S. and so was undergoing. Um, restructuring. Uh, I'm an MA lawyer, but I was involved in the restructuring because my firm, I mean, we were representing one of the main investors in the, um, in the new Avianca. And, uh, and of course, so the, the restructuring was, was driven by the, the, the impact that COVID um, had had on, on, on the company there. And it was something that the industry had already seen um, like 20 years ago, I mean, in the, in the aftermath of, the, of 9-11. Um, and so n nowadays, I mean, in the U.S., we're seeing like consolidation with the acquisition of, of Spirit. And so I was wondering whether, you know, any of, of you would like to, to comment on this and, and perhaps, I mean, uh, yeah, basically single out, I mean, to, to see whether there is anything uh, that we should uh, expect to, to see from a, a, um, a transaction wise, I mean, from, from a, uh, a corporate transaction perspective uh, when it comes to uh, airlines uh, again uh, in the uh, uh, next couple of years. I mean, in the uh, so the, the future what scenario. What exactly is the question? Sorry. The, 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 the well, yeah, whether you uh, could comment on, on, you know, what's been happening in the industry from a um, uh, transaction perspective, again, well, having seen the restructuring in the. Or? 
No, no, it's more, I mean, it, no, it has nothing to do with merger no. acquisition. It's the, um, what has happened in the industry, again, in South America, we've seen restructuring. In the U.S., we're seeing consolidation now. So basically, the question is, uh, you know, what, what do you see uh, going forward in that, um, in that respect for, for airlines? Thank you. Anyone? I think, I think um, <clears throat> uh, consolidation is something that's been going on since almost time began in this sector as it's as it's deregulated so i don't think we're going to see that changing um across any market so consolidation will, will certainly be something into the future maybe accelerated by what's happened the last two years potentially um uh so i think yeah that will be a trend that will definitely continue any other questions anyone nope uh, i think i am handing to nora very quickly and then very quickly. <laughs> no, just to say um, uh, thank you very much. I think it was uh, extremely interesting, not only for an audience who is familiar with transport, but also as uh, travelers ourselves. I think it was fascinating to, to listen to, to your experts' uh, views. I think there's an idea that was floating that I want to, to pick up uh, is the fact that transport is much more than moving people. And it's so important for the for the economy. And I think that's an idea that we have seen with COVID, uh, how much the economy suffered from also uh, the lack of uh, of movement of uh, freight um, and of people. So I will stop here because I realize it's a bit hot. <laughs> Sorry for the technical issue with ventilation. Uh, and we hope we make it up well by uh, inviting you all for a, a drink uh, next door. And I want to thank again very much the panelists, Ben and the panelists and, uh, and you for, for attending. Thank you.